a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a rock. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding, Expanding reality. reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, we have Dr. Pietro Calvi Pedacetti. He is a medical doctor, uh, but he does a lot of exploration into the concept of life after death, life between lives. His uh, book that was just released uh, early in March of 21 this year, uh, Step Into the Light, is absolutely incredible. It's, a, it's full testimonials from people who have had near-death experiences and come back to tell the tale. And so he's written four books total. We really kind of just talk about this one and this one concept on here about what happens after we die, uh, alternate explanations for the phenomena. Uh, we talk about similarities between the accounts. This is one of the best deep dives we've ever done on this show uh, about life after death and that phenomena in particular. So it's a wonderful episode, guys. Make sure you check the show notes for all the way to find him, including his book, Step Into the Light, as well as uh, the show notes will have the links for this show, which would be all like the socials and stuff. Clearly, you found the show because you're listening to it. But if you want to expand your experience on the show, there's Patreon over there. We have uh, merch available. We have all the socials, which I have a really dope meme page going on on uh, Instagram. So you guys go check that out. All linked uh, in the website there. And then also Rockfin. Make sure you guys check out that as well. That is where our premium content, along with other incredible content creators, uh, premium stuff is. Uh, Amy Belair's over there, Charlie Robinson and Macroaggressions. You've got, I mean, all the same Tripoli stuff. We have a ton of things going on over there. Uh, Forbidden Knowledge News. We, they're just, like I said, it's an incredible hub. It's a great platform. Grateful to be a part of it. So uh, that takes care of the show announcements, guys. So let's get to this incredible conversation with Dr. Pietro Calvi Perasetti. All right, ladies and gentlemen, extremely excited to welcome Piero Calvi Perosetti to the show. He is absolutely incredible, a medical doctor. Uh, you have an incredible story. Uh, we are really excited to talk about your work and, of course, your uh, latest book, uh, Step Into the Light, which was just released this year uh, in March. And so very excited to have you on. Thank you for your time in advance. Uh, if you don't mind, just tell my audience a little bit about yourself, my friend. Before we get started, Brendan, let me thank you. Because as I always say, we're in this together. Without people like you, people like me would not exist in a way. You see, I mean, um, 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 I produce content. I produce information. But if I don't have outlets and channels to reach for that information to reach the intended targets, I'm, I have no reason to exist. And the people like you and your audience Give me that reason. So it's me thanking you for, for, for having me on this show. Um, name, Italian name, Scottish adoption. I've not lived in Italy for 35 years now. And I am a medical doctor, then specializing in public health. 
And for quite a few years, I worked in international humanitarian aid with International Red Cross first and then the United Nations. And then at the end of year 2000, I moved from the field to the classroom. And for about 17 years, I taught public health in emergencies and disaster management to university students. I say this to stress that I am a Western educated medical doctor. That means that I grew up in a, in a culture, in a system of thought that maintains that anything that can possibly exist is matter. If you cannot touch it, if you cannot measure it with your instruments, it simply does not exist, right? And I was pretty happy with it. I mean, I grew up in that and I, I never challenged it. Uh, so until a day, uh, I reckon around 2004, when we were living in Switzerland at the time in Geneva, and uh, my wife and I were having tea, as couples do, on, like, on the kitchen table, and my wife happens to bring up a little spooky story, a story of wrappings and, you know, this little paranormal thing that happens to her. She's Scottish uh, in Glasgow when she was a late adolescent. And to tell you the truth, Brandon, if that, at that time, if you had told me a story like that, I would have smiled politely and, you know, and moved on. <laughs> but, you know, that it's, it's my wife who told me, and she's the person I know best and I trust the most. And I could tell she was still perturbed after all these years by this, you know, interesting, intriguing episode. N nothing major, but yeah, intriguing. And so with a stiff upper lip attitude I had back then, I told myself, hmm, let me see if anything serious has been written about this stuff. And I say stuff, but I would use another term you would <laughs> I like to imagine, okay? And I immediately stumbled upon the 575 pages of a book written by a super credentialed psychology professor here in the UK, the late Professor David Fontana. I mean, a member of, a member of the Royal Society, for, for God's sake. He doesn't get any more respectable than that, okay? And the title of the book is, Is There an Afterlife? Question mark. A review of the evidence. Wow. Well, those 575 pages were followed, I reckon, to this day by another 30,000. I became a member of the Society for Psychical Research, the International Association for Near-Death Studies in the US. I went to conferences. I went to study days. I even came to Alabama to train personally with Dr. Raymond Moody. You may remember the first one who spoke about, uh, wrote about near-death experiences in, in the uh, mid-70s. It's been a long and, 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 and fascinating uh, voyage of discovery, discovery, and it's no, it's it's not a, a linear. It's it's a coming and going, and, and then two steps forward, one step back, etc. Because you know the old habits, the old materialism dies hard. But at the end of this voyage today, with uh, at the best of my intellectual honesty, I can say that I, I believe honestly. It's a rational belief. It's a belief based on, uh, on the knowledge 
and critical evaluation of facts. I am, and I remain a scientist. No, I'm not a scientist, but I'm a science-oriented person. I'm a left-brain person, and but I succumbed to the collective way of the evidence. So today, and with this, I conclude this long introduction. I apologize. Today, I am rationally convinced of two things. Number one, what we call mind. Our thoughts, our personality, our affections, our memories, our sense of being alive, with all that comes our mental life, are closely related to, but independent from the physical brain. And secondly, hold yourself tight. In a matter which we do not understand, significant aspects of human personality survive physical death. I do not have an explanation. I do not claim to have one. Those who do, who invoke the quantum field and whatever, I really have not much time for that. I think that anybody who's honest has to say, we don't know. It's a quote from a psychical researcher here in the UK of yesteryear who said, I didn't say it was possible. I said it happened. And that's exactly my attitude concerning survival. I don't understand how it works, but we do seem to survive physical death. Could not agree more. There's way too much evidence for it. Uh, and I've got to say your intro is perfect. It, it's intriguing. You, you have a phenomenal story. I cannot wait to unpack this stuff. But I, I just want to touch on a couple things that you said. So up top, <clears throat> this is definitely a symbiotic type of a thing that we're all endeavoring on on here. You have content. Uh, I'm a conduit for such content. And I'm just grateful to kind of be this part of it because I'm not an experiencer myself. I don't look into things the way that other people do, but I'm fascinated by it. And so uh, being able to get this out is, like I said, uh, an honor for me. So thank you. It's really cool to kind of reciprocate mutual. that. It really is mutual. Absolutely. I, now, when you said uh, you are a scientist, but then kind of backed off from it, I agree with you um, in it in a very strong light, just simply due to the fact that science as a whole, it used to mean discovery. And it used to mean, mm -hmm. you know, let's find out these mysteries to these questions. Oh, well said. Absolutely. And and then somewhere along the lines, uh, some people started asking to close to the truth type questions. I do think that there's sort of a cover up or a nefarious action that goes on here to kind of shroud these type of greater mysteries from us as a collective. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that it's deliberate, but I, I don't think that it goes against natural law for us not to be able to discover these things. So as they become discovered, they have to discredit. And that's where you kind of get the the separation between scientists calling themselves scientists and then at researchers detaching from that moniker simply because it's got such a um, a cloud over it, you know, as far as discovery goes. It's and I've talked to Dr. Ian Rubenstein and that's how that's how we met uh, it, about this is that there's just kind of this umbrella, there's this box that that has to fit in and if it doesn't fit in and it's thrown out and not researched further under the official paradigm, which is why I love uh, perceptions like yours. I think that this is wonderful. This is definitely the next step and I've been fascinated by the life after death, the what happens in between lives, um, multiple lives, you know, reincarnation as a, in a sense, uh, being able to be reincarnated as multiple entities, either aliens or trees or squids or something like that. Um, 
And then learning from all of this, but then being able to consciously, some folks being able to consciously recall these past lives and learn lessons from them in this life. I, I think this whole thing is fascinating. I think that there's a massive mystery here uh, that folks like you are chipping away at the veil of to uncover for everyone uh, from a very rational point of view. So I like your background and how you apply it to the work that you're doing now, because in my mind, it really legitimizes you. You've gone from both spectrums. You've, you've been on both sides of it. And now you're able to kind of integrate that information, but you had the open mind to be able to see it that way. So um, what what kicked you off besides your wife's experience? What was the next one that you looked into that just kind of solidified your idea that this was an actual phenomena? Listen, uh, interestingly, you called me an experiencer. I don't know if it was just in a way a slip of of the tongue or or, or, or you use the term like that, but I am not an experiencer. Much to my chagrin and and displeasure, I wish I I was an experience, but I never in all these years, I had the direct experience of the things I have studied. It seems it would appear that this incarnation of mine is an incarnation really of the mind of the of the rational mind is is a life for learning for studying for for uh analyzing as i say i do not take even the evidence we're talking about i don't take i don't take it at face value because it's it wouldn't be honest to me it would not be honest for the people i i write and speak for so uh very important to to challenge even facts that that, that seem self-evident and apparent Let's challenge them. Uh, So uh, that has been my path, really, accumulating information. And then I have a a little gift, perhaps, of of being able to arrange things and put things that belong together together. And and then as as a longtime university lecturer, I'm good at communicating. And I'm, 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 I'm good at explaining things. So I tried to put the two things together. You know, there's a... I've funnily enough, I wrote a post on, of all things, Facebook this morning, exactly on this. The term psychical research is not used anymore, has essentially disappeared from the from the from the parlance. Shame, because it was very important in Victorian times, the SPR, the society I belong to, Society for Psychical Research, and this has been used maybe up to the 40s, 50s, maybe the 60s, and then it disappeared. Psychical research is what we call today parapsychology, which is the study of uh, uncommon and as yet unexplained human faculties like telepathy, precognition, mind over matter, and and all that, plus the study of evidence for survival of personality to physical death. You put the two things together and you have psychical research. Today, my understanding is that we speak of parapsychology on the one hand, and perhaps afterlife science on, on uh, concerning the study of, of evidence for survival. But I, and I, I made this long introduction to say that perhaps my real area of specialty is applied psychical research. And by applied, I mean, uh, let's, let's take the findings, particularly of, of research of, and, and evidence for survival, Let, let's use for those findings for the benefit of people 
and particularly as a doctor, I'm, 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 I care for and, and not worry about, but I mean, I really care for those who are in pain because they've lost a loved one. And those who are in fear of death, who, who ask questions, either I ask questions or are outright scared, maybe an impending death, their own or a loved one's. So there is inevitably a lot of, of interest uh, around the, this thing of, you know, the issue of possible survival. And so my activity really over the years at the beginning has been all, all studying and, and, and a bit of writing. And, and now, gradually, it, it moves towards uh, towards this applied psychical research. One of the things I've done uh, a few years ago, I invested, oh gosh, about 2,000 hours of work into producing a, an eight-hour video course on evidence for life after life, 23 chapters, 23 lessons, and an accompanying self-help manual based on cognitive behavior techniques, okay? And I donated this to the Forever Family Foundation. That's a whole, I guess, you want to have my very dear friend, I will give you the details later, Bob Ginsberg, who's the vice president of the FFF. Forever Family Foundation is a non-for-profit, non-religious organization, strong of about 12,000 members worldwide, whose who's mission is exactly propering, propagating, diffusing, informing people about evidence for life after life. It was particular with a particular focus on parents who've lost a, a child, but it's, it's directed to anybody who's, uh, who's in, uh, in pain. And so that was a big chunk. And I keep collaborating with, uh, with the foundation. I come to the U.S. essentially every year. They organize retreats in which you have a very interesting, um, you have maybe 20, 25 bereaved, typically bereaved parents, but not only bereaved people. And you bring them together with research mediums and with people with a science background over three days. And it's a very interesting multidisciplinary approach. Again, the bottom line here, I'm sorry to get so wordy, but if you look, uh, if you look at the basic tenet of uh, cognitive therapy, is that the way we feel depends on the way we think. It's not events in themselves that may disturb us, but it's our interpretation of events. Now, if you have lost a loved one and think that that person has disappeared, has vanished, has crossed the threshold and atomized into a black nothingness, has simply ceased to exist, you think wrongly because that is not supported by evidence. Evidence, facts, tell us otherwise. Evidence, facts, tell us that, I repeat again, in a way which we do not understand, that loved one goes on existing in a non-material dimension. We call the spirit world for, for shorthand, you know, and it's, it's useful. I mean, it's, it's call it like that, all right? So I'm, I'm, I keep saying that 
for somebody who's lost a loved one, there's a part of the pain which is absolutely unavoidable. There's no tablet, there's no theory, there's no faith, there's nothing that can take away that pain. That is an essential part of who we are as human beings. It's the most common experience shared by all people, all races, all throughout history. We know pain and we experience pain. However, on top of that, there's another layer of suffering, which is unnecessary. Okay, and through my my book and manual and 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 the and the course and whatever I do in terms of of writing and speaking and and the little counselling I do with people, I try to take away that unnecessary pain. I try to show people that it is reasonable to believe in the afterlife. It is reasonable to believe that the person you've lost has not disappeared. And when I say it, it is reasonable, it, it means that it is a belief, because it is a belief. But it's a belief not based on faith. You, you don't, they don't trust me. They don't trust a guru. They don't trust a holy book or any book, really. They trust what I call the immense collective way of the evidence. My suggestion to anybody who's either in pain or in fear or just interested in these issues is know the evidence, engage with the evidence, go through the process of saying, oh, hold on, are there other explanations and what could it be, etc. At the end of that process, you will come out with what I call a rational belief in life after life. Nothing is proven. Not, not, nothing is proven or provable. I mean, philosophy of science say, you know, at the end of the day. However, there are beliefs which are not supported by facts, and there are beliefs which are supported by masses, masses of compelling empirical evidence. And I very much liked what you said about science. Science is not, has become, unfortunately, has become a set of ideas, but it was never meant to be. Science is a method, and the method is very simple. Follow the evidence. Look at the facts and draw conclusions from the facts, wherever those facts will tell you, will, will, will take you, right? And now, unfortunately, we have this, this dogma and, and, and everything which says that all this doesn't exist and it's not possible and blah, blah, which is in itself a faith. It's like a belief. Scientism is indeed a, a, a belief much less supported by facts than what we believe in. <laughs> I would say it's bizarre, but I mean, it's a battle of facts and we win hands down. I love it because it is a battle of facts, and uh, but facts are subjective, which I want to get to in a minute. But what I love about what your work does is that you're tackling the two most uh, mysterious questions having to do with the existence, our understanding about existence, which is consciousness and then what happens after we die. I don't think that they're separate just like you. I think that they're very, they go hand in hand. And I think that the way that we know that there's life after death is because of the smoking gun that is the mystery of consciousness. And whenever you talk about people who have come back from a near death experience, and I think that this, you know, probably happened forever, right? Somebody like got struck by lightning and one of our ancient ancestors died for a little bit, had this experience, comes back, tells of what they 
talked about. But I think also we're saving a lot more people. We've come to the point to where we can physically bring people back, not only from the brink of death, but after death, and or when the brain stops functioning, right? But there, there's in that window of time and what the smoking gun of consciousness, that it's non-local to the body, I think that's what we're all figuring out right now, is that uh, people will recall things about specific things that happened in the room after they quote unquote died or the brain activity had died. So scientifically, they should not have been aware of anything happening in that room, but yet they Which, recall- Sorry, scientifically, when you say scientifically, you mean according to the faith, <laughs> to the belief, uh, which is prevailing and, you know, which is uh, it's not scientific. Scientifically, we know that they're, they're, the brain functions it's sorry, they, the consciousness functions when they have no brain. That's yes. what science says. Yes, that's I, I, what the facts say. So no, no, no. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm just no, you're, wanted you're to absolutely expand. right. And this is why we, uh, why I kind of wanted to up top delineate the difference between science now or what science is, and that it used to be a thing of discovery. But it, I, I think a lot of our systems have gotten perturbed. You look at the metal, medical system with what Rockefeller did to it around the Industrial Revolution. You look at the education system that happened at the, about the same damn time. Uh, and these are ways of I think separating us from source, separating us from what's really going on here and implanting a bunch of fake things that aren't real, but then that because of objective reality, which again, I want to get to in a minute, uh, it kind of perpetuates itself and becomes real. There's these concept of tulpas and that reality is created by you and your thoughts and like what you said, your your thoughts and then taking it beyond that, your thoughts create your reality, right? There's a lot of strong evidence to support that as well. The problem is, or one of the challenges that you run into is the repeatable nature of this stuff, which is what drops it out of the official air quotes scientific method because that's not necessarily repeatable, which the scientific method, I've got my own argument on that, that it's not the end all be all. I think anybody that says the science is settled, and I know you agree with this as well, is uh, just being lazy. They're, they haven't figured it out yet, right? But I think that whenever you look at things like the near-death experience, I think that this is one of the most interesting things because now you're talking about, and here, we'll just go ahead and get into it, objective reality. So objective reality is very interesting to me because you find people that believe a certain way and that creates the way in which things physically manifest, even of the paranormal or exceptional extrasensory type nature, they appear as, you know, uh, stains of uh, the Virgin Mary on the wall. They appear as stigmata in Catholics uh, who believe that that's what they should be experiencing and they physically manifest this to themselves. So the, Absolutely. Yeah. So the idea of like an objective thing that happens to everybody ubiquitously, I, I don't know that it exists necessarily. I think that you have artifacts that there are certain things that kind of are in the same wheelhouse, but as far as, again, repeatable, this happened to this person, but we also saw that exact same thing happen to this person with different belief system. I think that that's, you know, the questions that need to be asked as well. How are you raised? What do you think now? What is your uh, paradigm all about? You know, what, what do you think happens after you die? Which leads me to uh, the next question, I guess. How much of a role do you think people's beliefs play in the experience that they have with a near-death experience? Wow. Wow. You've, you've opened up uh, such an interesting, a, a whole lot of very, very interesting thread. We could, we could go on talking forever. Right? You know, the thing is that this field, Brendan, is so rarefied that there's so few people one can discuss such things with, especially at the level of competence and, and understanding that you do obviously show in, in, in what you say, marvelous. So, but I, I cannot, I cannot address all these things because you asked me 
one one particular question here. And uh, can I uh, perhaps broaden the aim a little bit and, and live just a near-death experience in itself? Because, okay, now let's start with NDs. One of the most uh, extraordinary features, remember uh, NDE, I, I, I reckon there are about 12 big areas of investigation of data supporting a rational belief in life after life. Near-death experiences is one of those. Very big, very important, but it's just one. So let, let's just ma make this provide. Then if you look at the content of NDEs, study after study show that it is independent, independent or at least largely independent of sex or gender identification, race, culture, belief, not belief, a socioeconomic uh, condition, anything you want. You know, we have, as you sort of hinted, we have uh, pretty detailed descriptions of near-death near experiences in historic times, I'm, I mean, 30 centuries ago, okay? So it's in, 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 if you look in literature, it happens, even Plato, the philosopher Plato, seems to describe a near-death experience happening to somebody else, but I mean, in, in the same terms, essentially, in which it would be described today. So, on the one hand, you have these cross-factor similarities, which is extraordinary in itself. Now, hold on a sec. Let's go back to reality. Our materialist friends don't begin to have as much of a theory on what consciousness is, okay? Nobody knows. And it, they themselves admit that, oh, we don't yet have a theory, but we will soon. Okay. What they all agree on, however, is that in order for consciousness to emerge, whatever consciousness be, it may be, you need the coordinated, a finely tuned functioning of all the sectors of the brain. Okay. That's what they all agree on upon. Here we have people with no brain, period. We don't want to dig into that right now. If people who are, who are curious and are of a scientific sort of bend, bend they may visit my site, drparisetti.com, like Dr. Parisetti, my name, .com. They will find a 17-page article, that free download, in which we, we look in detail at the physiology and the phenomenology of near-death experience. And so there's no question of how dead is dead. These people are dead. There is no functioning brain, not only in, in the higher structures, the cortex and everything, but even down the most phylogenetically, ah, the most evolutionary old parts of the brain are off. There is no functioning brain, and yet people report a hyperconscious experience, which mysteriously, which mysterious the fact that they have this experience, mysterious the fact that they, they build long-term memories in fine details recalled 30 years after the experience. They can recall it 
build memory when you have no brain? Leave me alone. And even more mysteriously, the content, at least in terms of categories of experience, is pretty much the same across all those factors. Now, and I took a long way home to come to your, to your point. Obviously, one of the categories, if you want, one of the defining categories of, of, of the experience that not, 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 every, not every NDEer has, but many do, is encountering some sort of being on the other side. Okay? Now, if you're raised in a Christian tradition, and perhaps Christianity is important for you, and you, you've gone to Mass a lot and everything, how would you describe that figure when you come back? Usually as like a family member, being of light, something like that. Okay, no, but if, if you have the idea that this is a, a, the, the, the higher master, a higher being. Oh, like a ever. god, yeah. I've seen Jesus. Yeah, yeah, or whatever religious affiliation you identify with. So you can it, see it, you tend to you use that language to describe a, a, an experience which is essentially common. I always use the uh, the experience of visiting the Paris, the city of Paris. You know, if you take ten people and you send them to Paris for a week, they will come back with broadly the same story, but everybody will tell it differently because of their background and experience, etc. So. As, and we're getting into fine details here. As far as the near-death experience itself is concerned, I do not see much evidence that our belief and expectations creates that experience. They have a big influence on the way we report and describe the experience. Are we clear on that? Can I put a full stop because I need to go on? We are, and I'll, I want to come back to a defining point, but please continue. Okay, all right. That's, and it seems to be the point I want to make now, since we're really getting into the meat of the substance, I hope we will not be losing too many listeners here. Oh, no, we have a very high vibe, high intelligent. They're on board, <laughs> I promise. <laughs> we uh, are we blessed. Have the best audience. Yes, absolutely. Very good. So, we have evidence on this side of the divide, that unpredictably, as you very rightly say, unrepeatedly, but there's, there is undeniable evidence that our thoughts, intentions, projections either create, manifest, or influence what we assume to be physical reality, okay? There is evidence. There's no 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 question about that. Uh, I I suggest a book by Michael Grosso Grosso uh, G R O S S O, speaking about miracles exactly in 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 those terms. Miracles, not only the religious miracles, but very interesting. So we have evidence on our side, on the material side. And we are told very clearly in no unequivocal terms that at least two of the levels of the spirit world, which appears, appears again tentatively to exist in what we would describe as concentric levels, there are at least two which are absolutely psychoplastic. 
psycho as thoughts, plastic as molding. They're entirely molded by our expectation. And it's always described essentially as the, our idea of heaven. Beautiful landscapes, colors that you've never seen, and scents and music and marvel, and all that is projected. However, is projected in such a way that it really feels like reality. So it's it's really it's really bizarre and it's really interesting. So, in a way, if we really and, and, and interestingly, I, I make this consideration just now as we speak, triggered by your your question. The NDE sits a little bit in between. You see what it's, it's bizarre. I, I need to think a little more, but uh, it for for the benefits of the of the of the public who's approaching the subject, I would rather stress the the mystery and the marvel of the fact that NDEs a they occur at, at all, which is extraordinary, and and b the fact that they are so common they are so common why tell ah here again take for instance a, a component of the nd which is then also related by our spirit communicators they speak about the same thing i.e the fact that there is no judgment if you are raised in a judeo christian tradition what you expect is that you die you meet God and you're judged and sentenced either to, uh, you know, redemption or to, or to, or you're damned forever. Well, this is absolutely not what happens. And, and, and a, a Christian person comes back and says, no, listen, I was not judged. I did the judging. I was made to relieve my, relieve my entire life, second by second, I re-thought every single thought, I re-felt every single sensation, and I could also feel, feel the effect of my actions on others. And that was not for judging, that was for learning. It was a learning process for me. It was a growing, maturing, getting wiser process for me, a taking stock process, after which either people come back in the NDEs or they move on to uh, greener pastures, I would say, in the, in the afterlife. But it's very interesting. So you have features of the NDE which are actually counter to the tenets of some religions. And again, research shows that, you know, uh, people who've had an NDE, I wish I had an NDE because, I mean, people come back so changed. There is a raft, an array of psychological and behavioral changes common across all those who've had a near-death experience. One of which is that if they were religious to begin with, they come back less religious and more spiritual, with a broader sense of spirituality, less attached to a particular tradition and a particular dogma and teachings, and with a, with a broader sense of, you know, the ultimate nature of reality, which we may call God if we want, but we, you call it the source, you call it ground consciousness, whatever. And that's really interesting. 
No, it's incredibly interesting. All of this is so fascinating. I have so many questions for you. You're wonderful, by the way. I just need to stop and uh, tell you that, how great you are. <clears throat> so one of the interesting things, and why I say that maybe your reality creates what you experience after death until you get to like a great awareness. It could be, and this is all just speculation here, we kind of go down some deep rabbit holes of philosophy here, but it could be that this existence that you're experiencing is an in-between life. Maybe you died in another life, and what you're experiencing now, this whole thing, is kind of a transition period with little glimpses to see kind of how ready you are to really know your true power and to know the real truth. Mm. And maybe that's what the death in this experience is. Maybe all this is, is a life in between lives. We don't know. We don't have a way to quantify that. But another thing that's interesting is whenever you talk about these self-fulfilling prophecies, as far as what people experience, as far as loved ones, uh, the ultimate, the no judgment, things like that, there are a few counter experiences, which I'll touch on here in a second. But the reason I'm curious about this is because it seems like some of the reports say, I'm Christian, but you never hear a Christian going and having a near-death experience and seeing Shiva or seeing Buddha. You never uh -huh. have a Buddhist see Jesus. So what's interesting about this and why I'm curious about it is it seems like that in-between time, again, it, it, we'll just call it immediately after death. We don't know what time looks like at that period, but what you experience that people come back and say as far as reinforcing religious ideologies in this plane, it seems like maybe they're just there as, again, kind of like a little stair-step packet. Who's to say that every life that we experience in any life is an in-between life, in-between lives, that you are here to learn little things before you jump onto your next one? There's, no, again, no way to quantify this, and it would make the mind rattle. I, I'm, I am I'm sorry, Brendan. That's exactly what transpires if if you listen to the, the sources of information, that is exactly what transpires. That you just keep going for, to, to different lives. Uh -huh. So, in a way, life, if I have to summarize, let me, let me say for the benefits of your, of your uh, listeners, very briefly, the approach I've taken with this, with this latest book of mine called uh, Step Into the Light. Step Into the Light was written originally thinking of people in, in fear of death. Right. But then it turns out I, the, the email and feedback I received that a lot of bereaved people and com normal people, ordinary people with no problems, find it very interesting and very useful. So uh, I know in, in the US you don't have this and it's, it's bizarre because in Europe is the big thing. If you travel to whatever country you go, you buy a um, Lonely Planet guide. You go to Amsterdam airport and two, two, one people in three has a Lonely Planet guide under the, under the arm, right? And the beauty, the smart idea of Lonely Planet is that these are guides made by travelers themselves. There's an office in the Netherlands, which for decades now has been collecting reports for travelers to Thailand, to Phuket, for instance, the island in Thailand. And people write back, and so you get a, a first-hand direct knowledge of what the place is from people who have been there and can tell you, right? And so the office put these things together, and you have the guide, the Lonely Planet Guide. So my idea was to put together a Lonely Planet Guide to the afterlife, it's essentially. So cool. right? so it, cool. uh, it, it, <laughs> because so there have been a few books attempting to, to, you know, systematize and describe what happens. But I think that my, my approach uh, of, with all that's been written was had originality. And so 
I thought of consulting since we want to know what happens before, at the moment of death, and afterwards. Let's look at three categories of travelers, if you want to use that lonely planet. I love that term. That's a great way to put it, is travelers, because that's all this is. And so we have uh, people who've had uh, a deathbed vision, an end-of-life experience, and maybe we'll say in a moment what that is. People who've had a near-death experience, and people who've actually died and communicate to us through a number of channels, through gifted mediums, through instrumental transcommunication, through uh, apparitions, through uh, now the recently developed techniques of induced after-death communication, blah, blah. There's a number of channels, okay? And we get testimony from these three categories of travelers. And half the book is devoted to establishing the credibility of these sources, because I don't want to be taken for a ride, and especially I don't want to take my readers for a ride. So it's a sort of a, a CSI, scientific investigation, if you want. We look in details at the phenomenon of DBV, NDE, and after-death communication. And to cut a long story short, at the end, we conclude that it is reasonable to trust these sources as a source of information on the process of dying, of death and, and, and dying. Now, I could answer your question. Let me answer, answer your question, which comes at the end of the book. If you take a step back and you look at everything that transpires from these sources, which are extensively quoted in the book. But the book is not only a, a sequence of quotes. There's quotes and there's analysis and putting things together and organizing because that's what I'm good at. I'm, I'm, I'm a lecturer by, you know, <laughs> that's what I do. So I use the sources and then I make my comments and the analysis and put things together. At the end, if you really step back, and look at this incredible grand scenario. What you conclude is that life is one, essentially, in the material and in the spirit world. And essentially, it's, it would appear as going around in circles, because you have an incarnation, then you have a sojourn in the spirit world in various levels, and then you incarnate again, and then you go to the spirit world, etc. But it's not going around in circles. It's actually climbing a spiral, a staircase, because it would appear that life has a meaning, has a scope, has a reason and a meaning, and the reason is experiencing. We exist to experience. We, we, we are created out of this God, if you want to call it God, or, or ground consciousness like waves emerging from the ocean with the aim of experiencing. And we do accumulate experience and wisdom. And so every time we come back to the, to the earthly plane, we make different experiences, and every time we go back to the uh, afterlife, to the spirit world, we get to different levels because we make different experiences 
there. And we keep growing, growing in experience, in knowledge, in wisdom. People talk about levels of vibration, and I know that's useful as a metaphor, but it makes my toes curl because what <laughs> does it mean, levels of vibration? You know, it's, it's a good image, but... <laughs> Well, I, I think it's got to do with just what resonates with you. And and to your point, though, I like the experiential nature of, of your observation of what happens here, because that's what resonates with me the most. I think, if anything, your task here, your job or your soul contract, however people want to put it, it's not to check off a few things on a box because you have to. It's it's accumulating experiences to add to your repertoire. It's kind of like this whole thing is just a gigantic like scavenger hunt. It's kind of like you're around here just saying, okay, in this lifetime, I want to be a musician, like you're a great guitar player. In this life, I want to be a musician and I want to be a doctor and I want to talk about uh, life after death. And then in the next one, you've already gotten those merit badges. So as you said with a spiral, I agree with, this is what resonates with me the most, is that it is just experience. You couple this with the um, accounts of people going into the afterlife and talking about no judgment. Therefore, there's no morality here that you've got to live up to. I mean, it, it's like you want to have as pleasurable of an experience as possible. And so by being nice to people and being helpful and being uh, positive, those things make you feel good. But there's no moral Indeed. obligation to do that in fear of what happens to you in an, in the afterlife. Certainly not. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Which I, ag I agree with. Uh, so one thing I did want to touch on that you talked about was um, is the comfort element to this, because I think that that's what the study of this is all about. It's unraveling a mystery, but for a, a couple of different reasons. It unravels the mystery to talk about the mystery and to find out what's going on just from a purely substantial point of that it's cool, that it's fascinating, that it's mysterious and it's fun, right? To kind of figure these mysteries out. But another thing I think that it provides is it's a level of comfort on two levels, a level of comfort for the individual experiencing it that's still alive in this existence that says, okay, well, cool. We, we have a little bit more understanding. Therefore, not only is this not scary, but it's something that I can look forward to being pleasant. So therefore I can maximize my experience in this reality. Now, the other thing about this is, is that it brings us comfort in the people that we've lost and that have moved on that we want to see again, you know, um, and that we will, because we're all one. And I have a question back to that, but what I've, wanted to mainly ask was, is that to that point, though, it, it, do you feel that there's anything to that? Totally. Absolutely. However, again, for reasons of honesty with myself, with you and with everybody who, who, who listens and, and reads me, we have to be honest and clear. I mean, a rational belief in life after life does not cancel the fear of death or the pain. Those are natural, again, human experience or human traits that, you know, uh, people who've had an ND, yes, one of the changes they show consistently is that their fear of death is raised forever because they had a direct experience. Yes. They went there, they saw for themselves, and so they know exactly what happens. We have to trust, and we do trust, and that trust uh, diminishes, reduces either the fear or the pain, sometimes greatly, but it does not eliminate it completely. And that's, I wanted to be honest on that. It's not that, you know, it's like people of faith. Why should people of faith be, be scared of dying? And yet they are, with the exception of the saints and the gurus and the, and the holy men, right? Most people of faith are scared of dying. So 
let's not let's not expect miracles from this knowledge it's very useful it's very interesting it is beneficial but it, it will not turn you into ah wow yes let's die <laughs> well maybe though i i don't know i i'm gonna go ahead and slightly disagree with you on this because i think uh-huh. that the more christians that go over and that feel realize that they're not going to go to hell but there are examples of people who say that they experienced that and come back even more fearful which leads me to a whole nother rabbit hole that hopefully we can get touched on here today but what i think is is that by gaining these understandings what you're doing is you're tapping more into the way that we should experience and approach these type of ideas and transitions that I think that Western culture and this society, you know, portrays gruesome, gory deaths on TV and movies and stuff like that. And it makes it such a horrible experience that we don't even look at what happens after. Now, back to the religious element to it. The reason that I think that this will, why I disagree is because the, the clarity that this gleans is, is that the religious institutions that I think were uh, corrupted into being a, mo- a form of control. The way that they have that control is by scaring the shit out of people and telling them that they're going to go to a horrible place and burn forever if they don't do exactly what this person, this human in front of them is telling them to do. And once ever that veil is shattered, once people realize that it's it's a very personal experience for them, that they don't have to give their power away to somebody else to explain things to them that they've already experienced, that's where the paradigms collapse. And it's this fear-based system of an afterlife that I think that's the great understanding. I think that if we can reach that as a society with the evidence of like things like your book, that's what shatters the paradigm. Agreed. Agreed. But on a personal level that I was just making a cautious thing that, you know, you're left. I, I, you know, I still have a little tiny, tiny modest, but you know, I mean, do I really? Well, maybe no, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, and the difference I think that is very interesting is like a painful death versus what happens after you die. Nobody wants a painful death. We can all agree with that. And that's why if I designed a matrix or in my next creation as a god or whatever, I'm going to create to where whenever your life's over, you just float off into a mist and there's no like body to recover. There's no nothing. And it's all based on kind of like time, right? It's like a time release life that you get to live. And when it's over, you just vaporize and there's no pain involved at all. I think that would be <sighs> really, really cool. Right. Yeah. But I, I think that if we can eliminate or at least shine a little bit of light onto the alleviating the fears of what happens after death of what the takes a little bit of the mystery away, because like you said, there's been ubiquitous reports that have come back saying that it's warm and loving and a lot of people say that they didn't want to come back to earth they, they, they didn't want to hop back in here that's that's the, the you know the vast majority of NDFs wanted to stay there you know Absolutely. and this is this is also though what i think empowers people to not look forward to death right but just to take the fear away from it to just go okay look there's this thing that happens it's going to be amazing but don't think about that right now because why you're here is to experience the now in this place with the tools that you've been giving via your senses and you can just kind of put that part of it out of your mind like okay cool it's going to happen eventually don't look forward to it don't seek it but it's not something to be scared of just enjoy your time here here too i very respectfully and and lovingly disagree because we are told very clearly by our spirit communicator friends that the best prepared we are for what happens afterwards, which includes, you know, studying, learning, understanding in this life, what happens afterwards, the better experience we have there, particularly concerning the 
early experiences in the afterlife. Okay, uh, when someone, let me say this is something that is good to know uh, for, for for everybody that the moment of death is described as a non-event. In terms of the flow of consciousness, the moment-to-moment -moment flow of consciousness, there's no interruption, there's no solution of continuity. The moment before and the moment after are exactly the same, to the point that quite a few do not realize for a while that they're dead, okay? And it takes some time. The one, okay, the, the one sort of... Uh, situation in which death is perceived as an event is when the person was in pain before death, in pain or distress before death. The cessation, the immediate and complete cessation of pain and distress signals the moment that the brain has stopped, stopped functioning and consciousness has moved to this other whatever it is okay so that's the only case in which death is perceived as an event now the early afterlife can be a confusing place right because some people don't realize that they have died for a while other people are so attached to earthly things possessions cravings whatever that they remain in, in, the, in the lower, so to speak, this is tentative language, but lower spheres of the afterlife in places which at times are not particularly nice, okay? Because we talk about the cre creating the reality with our own thoughts, etc. So the point I'm making is that it is, remember there was a prayer in the Middle Ages that went like, uh, God save me from a sudden death not save me from death, save me from a sudden death, a death for which I was not prepared, a death that comes before I had a way to think about, and in this case, learn about what happens afterwards. Our communicators say that the more we know about how the process develops, the easier it is to navigate the experience and go to the, the higher planes and the higher realms. So I think it's good for everybody. It should be like, you know, general knowledge classes. <laughs> yeah, and I'm <laughs> to, with you. I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not thinking, I'm not advocating living our current material life just in function of that. No, but no. Get to know, get to understand, and keep it in the back of your mind as you live your life. That's 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 what awaits you. I th I think this is so interesting because uh, some people want to know what happens, some people don't. Um, I don't want to know how I die. I mean, that's that old question, right? If you could see how you die, would you want to know that information? And no, I don't think that psychologically I would be okay with that. Just simply because then you'd spend all this time thinking about it. And this uh -huh, is what I'm. Uh -huh. This is what I mean about robbing your now preparing for or over investigating what happens after you die because it it, it seems to me that that can rob you of the experience of why you're here thinking no, about the next uh -huh. experience but i do think a healthy balance between the um just kind of come into peace with it like what do you think happens right study the material and then get back outside and walk around and look at flowers and stuff because there's a lot of cool things to see here i think the main takeaway from uh, research like this again is just comfort for the people who've lost people and for the folks to kind of just be more empowered to live your lives here. Agreed, completely agreed, yes.
I love this, man. And uh, the juxtaposition for observations are what's interesting to me. Now, one would then question, do we create the things that we create after life because we've been told that that's what we should experience and that's why you get so many ubiquitous reports or is it the way that it happens? And therefore, having no information whatsoever, you're still at some point in that afterlife experience going to be awakened to the truth. So yes. it, it seems like in a way, the more you know about it, the more it can kind of guide or sabotage in a way, maybe your your actual truthful experience about it. Because let's be completely honest and I'll just I'll let you go off on this. I just wanted to Please. say this. Let's be completely honest here. We don't know what the hell who's telling us what. It could be one trickster entity like we find with the UFO phenomena or the djinn or any of these things where we actually live on some sort of prison planet, if you want to take it to this far extreme, where the archons kind of recycle our soul here to feed off of our energy. All of these things are Again, reports that other people have given based on the same metric of observation. And so whenever you marry all of these different ideas, it kind of just looks like that you can't rule out. You just got to kind of keep it in the back of your mind a little bit that this could all be bullshit, that it could all be just a big trick. It could just be a big lie and that we are just continuously harvested here. And so therefore, the idea that an afterlife is what these entities want you to think uh, would be like them guiding you into an understanding that's not necessarily accurate, but it's good enough for you to live the kind of life that you're supposed to here. It could be kind of like an intervention type thing. Like, hey, you're thinking about death too much. You're too scared about it. It's distracting you from the work that you've got to do here. We're going to give you a little nugget of information to take that out of your mind so that you can get back to the job at hand. It could be that deep as far as the element of perception, you know, I mean, and then, and then you can't even trust your own observations at that point because you're being fed something, uh, from an ulterior motive. It might not be malicious, but it's not accurate. Maybe, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I don't have an opinion. You're, you're taking me to territories that I really don't know. And, and I find I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I don't know. We're I are expanding your reality, brother. That's what we do. What, what I would like to say is that, I often uh, use the metaphor in, in, in describing what happens after, after death, after shedding the material body, to what happens to a tiny bubble of air which sits at the bottom of the ocean. The tiny bubble of air organically can do only one thing. That's go up, expand, get less dense, go up, expand and get less dense. And that is exactly what seems to be happening with the levels of the afterlife. There are lower levels which are close to Earth and very similar to Earth. There are a couple of levels which are essentially paradise or heaven as we imagine it to be, and which are psychoplastic and, and different for, for different people and everything. But even though who would not like to live in this heaven in which, you know, there are marvelous mansions, marvelous colors and food. And, and we're told that scientists keep studying that the subjects have been studying in life and musicians keep progressing their arts. And but obviously you want to stay there because it's the projection of what you expect. No man, the bubble has to go up. And we are told very clearly, look at the quotes, that at some stage, even those that marvelous life loses interest and you get attracted towards more light, 
less materiality, more refinement, more love. And you, you have to go up because you want to go up. And now thinking that that has been planted into us, I don't know, it, it, might, it might be. And then at that stage, reaching the higher levels, the higher spheres, that's the point where through uh, apparently a complicated process, there's decision about reincarnating, how, where, blah, 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 etc. But not always. For in, in some souls, the souls, or not some, the souls who have accumulated enough experience and knowledge and wisdom and refinement and age do not reincarnate anymore. And like a, the bubble reaches the surface of the ocean and merges into air. And that's what we apparently do at the end of this spiral staircase. We merge back into the ground nature of being, this con essential consciousness, out of which we had emerged in the first place as a little wavelet. Then the wave became bigger and bigger with more experience, more wisdom, and then it finally crashes onto the rocks and goes back into being what it has always been, that is, consciousness. What a beautiful metaphor, man. I love that. Thank, thank you so much for that. That that just hit me in a way that I really appreciate. So thank I'm, you. I'm glad. I'm glad. I, I find these accounts of people, and even, like I said, uh, Christians a minute ago, just to kind of bring back to this, is that they do experience some sort of hell or some sort of horrible thing that happens immediately after they die that they come back and tell us about. And then, therefore, it kind of reinforces the idea of what I believe is just a control system uh, that was manifested. But also, again, it lends to how powerful we are and how you can really create these types of places. And there's this idea of quantum um, immortality, which I'll touch on in a second, but basically it, it states just like you said, that your consciousness just kind of keeps going, but also that you are a powerful, powerful manifester, that you can cr really do create this reality. And then it gets even more, you step up your level of effectiveness, efficacy in your manifestation powers on the other side of the veil uh, is one idea that I've heard described, which is why maybe uh, some people experience these horrible, horrible experiences and then come back with these fear-based um, ideas about what happened or they're lying. I mean, we can't rule that out either. Or they were guided, they were shown something in a way to be a particular, and you don't know the depth of how these ripple effects go. So even an experience in near death or in this life of a paranormal phenomena could be planted there by some entity, by something, maybe your higher self, that then gives you this perspective that then ripples out into a greater understanding. It's these little droplets of things that operate on much higher scales that we're just kind of with our own mortal minds trying to gain context through. I, I go, as I did in the beginning, expanded reality, <laughs> really, on the, on the harrowing. So, unpleasant experiences in the early afterlife seem to be related, as we said, as people not understanding they've died or people being still strongly linked to the, 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 the last life they've, they've lived in the material world. Remember that even for those people, the law of the bubble going up still works. So they're not there forever. Eventually, you get unstuck and move. How, anyhow, you've mentioned a few times the very, very thorny and difficult issue of uh, non-pleasant 
near-death experiences. Because 90 to 95%, if you look at the studies, it's there. 90 to 95% of near-death experiences are not only pleasant, are the best trip you could ever buy <laughs> with the most expensive drug, right? It's something that we all would like to have. It's a glorious, spiritually, psychologically transformative experience that you come back completely transformed. Alas, 5 to 10% are not. You repeatedly uh, mentioned harrowing NDEs with visions of hell and, and really an un, 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 unpleasant uh, situation, but they're a minority within that minority. Okay. Most of that five, 10% are simply not pleasant. There's a vague unease, uh, confusion, not understanding. But it is true that a minority, maybe 1% to 2%, are frankly harrowing. Do I have an explanation for the life of me? I don't. Okay. I think that, yes, certainly a cultural pressure, expectations, uh, conditions in which this thing has happened. I don't know. I mean, really. I mean, I, I would lie to you if I, if I say that I have an explanation. I can only quote the, uh, the numbers. And, and and take that as I do. I for, Again, for reasons of honesty, I, there's a little, uh, a couple of pages in the book about that, in which I say, you know, I take this and I put it to one side. I know it exists, and I tell you that it exists. I don't know what to do with it, and it's it sits there. But, I mean, as, as a tiny fraction compared to the, the all the rest of, of an edifice, which seems to me rather coherent and consistent. It doesn't mean it's true. If you take your expanded reality view, this everything is possible, fair enough. But uh, for me, to me, it looks coherent and consistent. And, and I agree. And I, I like the uh, fact that it is recognized by you. It's not something just swept under the rug because it's anom an anomaly or it is in um, direct opposition to that which the majority has experienced. Now, I'm with you on this. But again, this is why I'm led to the idea or why I kind of lean on the idea that it's all created by you and that it's all very you um, manufactured, that, that 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 experience, whatever that transition is, is to help you. Now, if you have a horrible experience in that one to three, five percent uh, that then comes back to talk about that horrible experience, then maybe it's a way for you to, again, it's these little droplets that the spirit world drops into this physical reality to enhance our processors to glean us some greater understandings. And maybe that person was just a not good person. And maybe they had a lot of things to figure out. And this was the jarring experience that they needed to kind of slap Very them out possible. of it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. As part of the learning process, that's a, that's a really interesting, that, that could be, that. I like it a lot. Um, uh, it's, I, I like the, the look of it. Aesthetically is a great explanation. It's very neat. Cool. We'll take it. That's awesome. All right. Well, good. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, like I said, your, uh, your ability to coherently wrap your mind around these things is something I'm so impressed with you. I think you are one of the most incredible people I've ever talked to. I've really enjoyed this oh, conversation so far. Hey. Dead serious. I talked to a lot of people. Um, you have a very coherent understanding and you're able to communicate these ideas in a way that's very, very interesting. So I thank I, you very much. Well, I'll dig the hell out of you, man. This is honestly an honor. So um, what do you think uh, happens after we die then? You. 
Oh gosh, this is long, and I, I'm also looking at the time. It's uh, I will. I'm afraid soon have we'll, to go. We'll wrap it up I, after this. Give me your best explanation, and we'll leave it on a cliffhanger for the next one because I'd love to have you back. Great truth. If you look at the sources I quote in the book, great truth, comforting truth number one: we don't die alone. Okay, we die if we are conscious at the moment of death, and the death doesn't occur in suddenly, we tend, at least two-thirds of the cases, we, we, we die surrounded by our deceased loved ones, or lacking them, spiritual beings, guides who've come to help us transition, which is great. Great, a comforting truth number two, I already said, the moment of death is a non-event, so don't fear it. People say, oh, my God, the moment of death with it, that is not. It's a non-event. And, and if you were suffering before, you immediately stop suffering. The early afterlife is, again, we, we look at this as, uh, as it was a sequence in time, but it's a very human, it's a very material uh, way to look at this, okay? Because we're told on the other side that time, as we understand, doesn't really exist. Anyhow, we have to understand it and explain it in human terms, so we look at it as a sequence of, of events. You die, and then you spend some quote-unquote time in, in, a, in, a, in a sphere, in a reality which is much closer to, to the earthly plane. And in fact, that is the plane, the reality where most of the interaction between the two worlds happen. Ghosts so to speak, ghosts, spirits, seem to come through, come across from that level, not from the higher planes. Spirit, afterlife communication, we are told, is a lot easier from these planes than from the, the, from the other planes. And in fact, we have much more of it from the lower spheres, because the higher you go, the farther away, the less material, the more, you know, ethereal and vibration, vibration. <laughs> Raise your vibration, okay? Then for some, it, okay, there's a sojourn in, in this, in this close-to-earth realm. Then for some, there is a period of described as sleep, uh, a sort of regenerating deep sleep. Not everybody, but many do. Then come the, um, the non-judgment, the life review part, okay, which we've spoken about. Then we move to these two first, which I call again for shorthand, first heaven and second heaven, which are essentially our projection, our ideas of what heaven should be. And interestingly, we are surrounded, and here it's not me speaking, again, I'm quoting sources, we're there, we interact and are surrounded by people at our level of development. So people who are very similar to us. So you and I probably would end up in the same kind of environment and we would keep on having these conversations and discussing the things that are at heart to us. So it's interesting that similar people, they say the soul ends up in the kind of world it has prepared for itself or herself or or. or himself or herself during life. Very interesting. And the two heavens, are the first and second, are very similar. There's, there's less materiality. At that level, for instance, the first heaven, souls still have 
the impression of a physical body, which obviously is not there, but there's the, the consciousness and the awareness of the physical body, which is not there in the so-called se second heaven, and etc. And then, as I said, the progression continues towards less, at, at that stage, there's no materiality anymore, but the simil similarities with the material world uh, sort of go away. It's, 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 again, more refinement, more life, more, more, sorry, more light, more love, we are saying love, you know, remember the Buddhists say that uh, the ultimate nature of reality is emptiness with love at its core, or love with emptiness at its core. And when they say emptiness, they don't mean nothing. They mean emptiness of form, of substance, because it's, and remember, oh, I love, I love, I love, because if, if I am, um, you see Buddhist science behind me, because I like the aesthetics of Buddhism, but in fact, I'm closer to uh, to Hinduism, and particularly to Vedanta, the end of the Vedas, the latest period of the Veda, where the perfect formulation of this non-dual reality, non-dual, it means the reality is one, everything is consciousness, everything is consciousness. It's what we perceive to be as, as, as uh, matter is in reality, just an experience, is phenomenology. There, and here I'm touching the super core of things, and I'm saying the ultimate reality manifests itself as Sat Chit Ananda, being awareness bliss. And it's these are three. I heard about a tree, a, 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 a tripartite nature of yeah. reality before. Okay, <laughs> a tree, it's tree that comes back, and there's you. You are, therefore, you are aware, and the two things are are the same, and it manifests as bliss, right? And 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 that's where we seem to end up in the end. You know, we cross that threshold into light step into the light hence the title of the book i i can't thank you enough dude this has been incredible i have a thousand million more questions for you uh but let's call it on this one man we'll see you uh another time for sure you have an open invite my friend you have a home here anytime so and, please and come I, it would be my great pleasure very rare to have conversations at this level thank you very much thank you well, it's all you, man. You just bring out like a lot of this stuff as we were talking, just like you said earlier, it just kind of happens organically within the conversation. And then we can kind of uh, you know, explore deeper and deeper ideas, which is wonderful. I think that's part of a creative energy that you and I are sharing here as we do this, which hopefully bleeds. I, actually, I know it does. It bleeds over into the listeners and viewers as well. And uh, they're all grateful for you just like I am. So thank you so much. Uh, your book, of You're course, uh, Step Into the Light, uh, and you've written four books, but we'll just go ahead and link that one below. Uh, and then any ways to find you, of course, guys, your website, all of that stuff will be linked in the show notes. Please go check my buddy out. Uh, he is absolutely incredible. My friend, I cannot wait to talk to you again, and thank you so much for your time. My great pleasure. Thank you very much, and much love.
What an outstanding individual. What an incredible conversation. I love that man. He is wonderful. We will definitely have him back on. Um, you guys make sure to check out the show notes for all the ways to find him as well as his book, Step Into the Light. I uh, highly recommend researching this guy further. He is unbelievable. And like I said already, uh, he will be back on. So look forward to more from him in particular. So um, down in the show notes as well is how to find this show. All the socials and stuff are down there. It's going to just be the link that says expandingrealitypodcast.com. Like I said, links to all the socials are there. Patreon's there. All the merch. If you want to grab some t-shirts, represent. A great way to support the show. And it's just dope. We've got some really, really cool stuff. Shout out to my buddy Azzy for uh, picking up his dope set of threads. And he is enjoying it and throwing the shout out. So my boy Azzy, thank you so much for your contribution, brother and uh, representing. That is so cool. Uh, Also down there and linked at the website is Rockfin. You guys go check that out. That's where our premium content is being hosted through along with a bunch of other content creators. And it's just a really, really cool thing. So um, go out into your week this week, guys. Don't focus too much on death and be too scared of it. I don't think that that's the point of a conversation like this should give you insight into that Uh, It's all just a ride, guys. It's uh, cyclical. I love his bubble analogy that he talked about. And um, that's just what this is. So there's nothing to necessarily fear. Uh, We all don't want a painful death, and we can all empathize with that. But as far as the afterlife and going to hell forever and stuff like that, I, I think that more and more evidence is coming out that shows that that is less and less likely. And actually, a lot of the evidence, if not damn near... 99% of it comes out to say that it is the complete opposite of that. So that should give you a little bit of peace. Um, It does me. I don't know. I can't speak for y'all. But I will say uh, that whatever the hell this place is, go out into this world, pick up a piece of litter, uh, buy somebody a coffee or a meal in line behind you or in front of you. It doesn't matter. Um, Open a door. Be nice to every animal, human, entity, anything that you come across in this plane. And um, get out of the left-hand lane, of course. And beyond all of that, guys, go out into this beautiful place and uh, create some magic and all you've got to do is y'all just be good to one another. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.